Do you own firearms? Did you know there's an easy way for you to let everyone around you quickly see whether your firearm is loaded or unloaded? Well, meet muzzlestick, barrel, and chamber flags. Muzzlestick, chamber, and barrel flags offer a quick way for anyone, whether they handle firearms or not, to quickly see the loaded or unloaded status of a firearm. And that could save lives. Are you one of the nearly 80% of firearms owners that keep a loaded gun out of the safe for personal protection, taking an extra safety precaution by using muzzle sticks, big, bright barrel and chamber flags will let everyone around your firearm know if it is loaded or unloaded. Muzzle stick does not recommend keeping a loaded firearm outside of a gun safe, but the reality is that some firearm owners do. Clearly marking a gun status communicates to others around that may or may not have firearm handling experience that it is something that they would not want to handle. Muzzle stick is not intended to replace the rules of firearm safety. However, their chamber and barrel flags give firearms rapid and clear identification, which could result in saved lives. It's time for you to do everything you can to be a safe and responsible firearms owners. Head over to muzzlestick.com. That's M-U-Z-L-S-T-I-K.com today to place your order. After all, we all only have but one life. Hello, everyone. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. We hope everyone is enjoying their holy days. We have uh, Ramadan month going on. We have the beginning of Passover for Jews, and we have the Christians in their Easter weekend. So we hope everybody has an opportunity to commune with their God. So um, we have a lot on the schedule today. Frank James, Elon Musk, and the Moskva, I hope I pronounced that right, which was sunk in the Black Sea, and then something special for Christians. Not so much we're singling out any particular religion, but Victor does happen to know a lot about the New Testament, and so we're going to ask him a few questions on that New Testament. But first, let's take a moment for some messages. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right. Welcome back. So, Victor, I hope everything is going well for you. I think I was noticing today, because I know I always ask you, how is it going? And you tell me how the weather is and the drought is going. But I was noticing something today on that issue that, you know, 
nature doesn't change. And I think that's why people like to go into nature. Our national parks exist so that they can get away from this human world that is often in change. So, you know, for example, you can have the Russians putting huge artillery holes in the ground in the Ukraine. And yet here, out here in Central Valley, nature is growing wildly to create all sorts of fruits and nuts. And I kind of appreciate that today. Yeah, I, um, it gives you a regularity, a schedule, a predictability. Yeah. And I always, I was very fortunate. I think that half the country grew up with people who were born in the 19th century and half didn't. And when you had that opportunity, feel bad that my children didn't, but I was born in 1953 and my grandfather was born in 1890 and the other one was born in 1889. So when I came of age, say at 73, they were already in their eighties, but I remember them at five and six when they were in their sixties. And so I inherited a glimpse into a pre modern world. And my gosh, what a treat or enlightenment. Like you look back and you think, wow, they live, you know, imagine that they, they live by the nature, you know, well, Victor yeah. get, now we're going to go to the high school graduation tonight. And, you know, between the 10th and the 15th of June, every year we'll get that cold wind, that storm will spin in and we'll need a coat or, Boys, it's time to pick those walnuts up. And we go out and pick the walnuts up. And then, then we're going to do the persimmon trees. And they're just all self-sufficient stuff for the winter, like we were squirrels. Yeah. And then I, yeah. it was so strange. You'd work all day and you think, wow, this was a drag. What yeah. a work day we had. That's nothing better, you boys. Boy. And guess what, Victor? Grandma, your grandmother's got a fresh apples in the porch and a frosty root beer with a scoop of ice cream for each. Oh, my God, what a life we have. Can you believe it? What yeah. paradise. It was this people who, I think, just in this little Excursion. It's not a but, rant. But it's I, not a rant. I, you know, I, when I was looking back at the farm, when I took over and my brother said, I had a neighbor and he said, I'll never forget. He was a very brilliant guy from India and he had leveled his entire place. We were, we were in a beautiful, it was like a Hobbiton out of Tolkien's The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings. There were hills, a pond and the modern farmer, when the cat three or four came of age in the 1940s, they leveled it it was all furrow irrigation. 600 feet, you turned on the irrigation, it went right down the furrow, and you went home. <laughs> Not us. We had it all pipelined, so different elevations. It took an engineer to figure it out. But we were only doing like two acres for an orchard or eight acres for a vineyard. We had all these weird names. Called, Go down and irrigate the vineyard between the ponds. Or go over there and get the sand hill irrigated. Victor and our neighbor would go, wow. <laughs> What are you boys doing? Uh, but it was beautiful. It was like Tuscany. It really was. Everybody came to look at the farm because there were hills and he had never bulldozed it. He would never bulldoze it. There were alleyways, trees, lines. So you'd roll down your window and get a peach or a Santa Rosa plum, Alberta peach. But it was uneconomical unless you were willing to, to work all the time because it was so labor inefficient. And he worked all the time. And he said once to me, this neighbor, he said, you know, you're going to go broke unless you level that whole damn place. Just tear the crap out and level it. And I said, now, why would we do that? And he said, your grandfather lived to work and you boys work to live. Understand that difference? You like the good life. He liked the good life of work and sweat and toil. 
And only he could do that. And he created, he would look at the land to create beauty and you look at the land to create a living. And that's good because that you that's how you survive, but you cannot do what he's doing. What he was saying, it was the 19th century. Yeah. Yeah. My grandfather said, how do you live on a penny and a half a pound for raisins? Excuse me. One penny for one pound of raisins is what they got during the depression. Uh, I have all of his diaries. So I read them. I read them my entire life and they're very tragic. And it was yeah. like, I'm going to get a penny a pound and I'm going to put a half a penny for each pound in the bank because I'm going to do that. As he said to me, you know, Victor, life is catastrophe and someone is going to die and someone's going to get married and someone's going to buy a home and somebody's going to need to get buried in this big family of ours and they're going to need something. And most people don't think like that, but I do. And so everybody would kind of caricature him for being very stingy because he he wore these railroad pants, you know, overalls, and he ate liver and cottage cheese, and he put everything away. But he was the most generous person. Nobody ever remarked that, oh, oh, my daughter died. Oh, my daughter's crippled. She'll have, oh, we're going to get married. We don't have, go see Mr. Davis. Go see Grandpa Reese. Go see Dad. And he would pull out that checkbook, and he would write a check for an entire six months of farming expenses. And then he'd be back to near zero and he'd save and scrunch on himself. Then he'd write another check for somebody. And he kept everybody going. And it sounds like he really knew. Yeah, he knew really how to predict people. So if I could use that as a segue to Elon Musk, he seems (laughs) kind of unpredictable a little bit, but very interesting bid for Twitter at, I think, $43 billion for Twitter. And a lot of disturbance of stocks. The stock went down. Stifle said that the stock was unstable because of a, quote, full-blown Elon circus. I love that um, quote, so I had to bring that in here. But what are your thoughts on Elon Musk's efforts to take over Twitter? And will it lead to, I think my bigger question is, is it going to lead to big cultural change that the left seems to be worrying about and the right seems to be happy to expect? We start with the premise that in societies, there is a rare breed, maybe one-tenth of one-tenth of one percent. We all have gifts. Some of them are never tapped or discovered. They're innate, but we don't appreciate them in people. But they have a gift to understand capitalism and how money works. And we know them from the past as J.P. Morgan or Andrew Carnegie or J.D. Rockefeller or the Mellons or the Guggenheims. And our generation, there are certain particular people, a Warren Buffett, Charles Munger, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, they have an act not just to create a new, they're not at, these are different people than Alexander Graham Bell or Thomas Edison or the Wright brothers. They are the inventive. These are people who can take these ideas and make them into an empire. And they love doing it, not just for the profit, although they're profit minded. And he's one of these rare people. But what separates him from a Bill Gates or a Mark Zuckerberg is he's multidimensional. So he brings this exuberance and this know-how to look at, look at a problem and get a solution and then magnify how it can be expanded to everybody and make a ton of money. But he's not interested in the money to live it up as he is to use the money to do another one. And the result is, if you need an electric car, he created the entire industry and they've never caught up to him. And everybody who had tried having a motor company other than the big three, Ford, GM, and Chrysler had failed in the modern era, not him. His stock is worth more than all of GE. 
and it's going to be worth more and more as price of energy apparently will be artificially constructed at the high space. He's space. Rapid internet all over the world. Ukrainians are using his space link satellite. So now he's looking at Twitter and social media. And he brings all that expertise, but he's not in it for the money. He wants the money, but he really wants to cause chaos. That's true. And he looks at these people that are one-dimensional in Silicon Valley, the Apple people, the Google people, and they have monopolies and they're smug. And he thinks that just as there's impediments to space travel or there's impediments to rapid internet use or there's impediments to electric wide-scale application of electric cars, and he's going to solve it. He sees this as a retrograde, reactionary, smug, incestuous group that needs to be blown up. And why does he believe that? Because he, as he said, you know, first of all, Twitter is kind of a fraud. It doesn't have 330 million followers. It's got bots. Second, it's not very profitable. I think it's ninth in, in the social media revenue ratings. And then more importantly, it does some very terrible things. It affects elections. It just puts a lid on the Hunter Biden laptop story, and it runs with the fake plot to kidnap the Michigan governor that was half cooked up by the FBI. And it bans the former president of the United States. It banned my wonderful colleague, Scott Atlas. It banned all these people, but it will not ban the Taliban. It will not ban an Iranian terrorist. It will not ban a Russian oligarch. So it's not just... Uh, hard left and against free expression. It's lunatic, crazy. So he's going in there and saying, I'm going to blow this thing up. And it's I know it's got up to 70, but I'll offer 54. You should take it because it's it's too high anyway, because your company is not very profitable. And more important, here's, I think, the subtext. These Republicans are going to take the House and the Senate and there may be a 30 or 40 percent chance that the blowout is so big, we've never imagined it. And they could take the Senate with 60 votes. If they do that, they run the government. And Joe Biden is is confirmed in his dotage. In other words, they can pass a law. Biden can veto it. They can override the veto. I don't think that's going to happen, but he doesn't know. But anyway, he senses the country is sick of this monopoly and they know it. And they won't change. They're sort of like the Democrats heading to Armageddon in November. They won't change. But he's kind of, I think he's saying to them, I can change you. But if you don't want to have my help, you're going to get it from these red, mad, angry Republicans. And they're going to shake you up. And then he's also saying to them, you got, you know, you kind of destroyed parlor. It's kind of resurrected a bit. Are you going to, what are you going to do with true social, the Trump and all these things that we all say they can't make it? Well, they said the same thing about Tesla. Don't mm -hmm. count Trump and Nunes out. I think they'll probably make it. So what he's saying is you're getting competitors on one hand that are going to be open for so that people can express their ideas without violence. Trump, true social, is not going to, it's not going to censor left-wing people the way that Twitter and Facebook do right-wing people. So that, and then there's a final challenge that Musk is looking at. The younger generation, I don't know much about social media. I have never written my own tweet. I think the staff has written stuff. My point is this, that these young kids, when you talk to them, they're on TikTok, they're on Snapchat, they're on, you, you know, they're not on Facebook and Twitter. So the market, those are becoming ossified. 
I never thought I could imagine it that way, but it seems like Twitter is the mature professional classes and Facebook is people in their 50s and 60s with family albums and all that. But the the edgy, you know, the the young kids that are glued to their cell phone, they're not doing Facebook. So what it, Musk is saying is there's a lot of centrifugal forces and movement. There's a government ready to pounce on you guys for your probably illegal behavior. There are competitions that are going to offer an open fora and there's new social media that are making you ossify that you may not be able to gobble up with your monopoly money. You may, you may not. They own YouTube, for example. So put all that together. This is a good deal because I can. Yeah, it is. Yeah. They should take it. Yeah. Yeah. They should take it. And if they don't take it, I think he's basically implying that the shareholders would sue the board for abject incompetence or ill will or something, because that's a great deal. And, I, I guess he's on paper worth $270 billion, so the $54 billion, those are levels of magnitude I can't imagine. I just know that if those ratios are, are comparable to any other people I know that are pretty wealthy, they're not liquid. So yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I bet he's worth $270 billion on paper with all these projects. I bet his outflow is such. I bet some of these new companies are not yet profitable. So I bet he's probably liquid with only, I don't know, 10%, which is $24 billion, which makes him one of the most liquid people in the world. But $54 billion is a lot of money. It is. But if you're a bank, I don't know, it sounds like a good risk to me, but I'm not a banker. So everybody maybe. likes him because even, you know, he's, I mean, everybody likes him because so many of the right, of the wrong people hate him. So yeah. I know people will say that I can't stand that person and they hate Elon Musk. Therefore, I like Elon Musk. Yeah. I don't really care that all of those guys are narcissists and egomaniacs, but I like mavericks and I like non-traditionalists. I like people who have contempt for that smug. I'm, you know, I'm Mark Zuckerberg. I'm Bill Gates. You listen to me. I'm the Davos set. And he doesn't, he represents Peter Till's another one. It's yeah. like that, that I really admire. Yeah. And they're, well, you've they're, made, they're, they're there to shake things up. Yeah. You've made it sound like Twitter will be ahead of the curve if they if allow they for it. them. Yeah. If they take well, he it. said not only, not only that he's not going to get on the board, that was kind of a faint, you know, I'm going to get yeah. on the board. And they all went into panic. Like, <laughs> nah, if I'm on the board, I'm wedded to your company. I might want to <laughs> blow it up. That's now right. He says, well, I may not even. I may not buy all of it. You know, I might even sell my shares. I think I'm trying to remember, but I think it was, uh, oh, what's his name? I'll remember his, his name in a minute, the big millionaire, a billionaire that tried this earlier with Twitter, like three or four years ago. And he, mm. he, bought, he bought a few hundred million and it didn't quite work to get control of the company, but he was a good, a good concern. Paul, Sayer, Paul uh, Singer, Paul Singer, mm. he came in with his investment hedge fund company and he bought a lot of shares of Twitter. And I think they kind of were trying to ease. I think they did ease Dorsey out and they thought they would get a conservative or a balanced. And I don't think it quite worked. Yeah. The, well, Arab, the we... Arabs hate, the Saudis hate Elon Musk. They don't, you know, the Saudi royal family owns, I think the second largest shares and they don't want him. Why mm. would you want, why would you want to open a company that was completely unfettered when yeah. you more or less know it's corrupt now, and not only does it censor left wing, but you basically tell them, don't 
attack the house of Saud. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why would you want to open it up? <laughs> All right. So let's turn from a guy that's doing some good for us and helping us in our world to uh, Frank James, someone who is creating and committing a lot of evil. So nobody said this yet. And I know that getting shot is not a good thing, but he shot 33 times in a subway car at one that was full at passengers. And he hit 10 of them, but he, he didn't really even kill anybody. I know some of them might be badly in the hospital. So that, of course, that's not good. But what a bad shot is the first thing I thought. And that was probably a good thing. Like evil doesn't learn to use their their, no, mil- be, their arms. Like, you know, for example, those guys in Benghazi, like super well-trained, you know, no, be careful. The Las Vegas sniper was a crack shot and he systematically killed dozens. That's true. Yeah, that's so, true. This guy was, they're all insane and crazy, sort yeah. of, but that's no excuse. But no. this guy was in his life was so messed up and incompetent. I mean, he was out of shape. He was ranting. There's videos of him ranting racist dribble um, yeah. all the time. So he was a bad guy. He was an abject racist. And, and he had been picked up 12 different times by cops in New York and New Jersey. And yeah, so we was, all wonder, how does this happen? Yeah. How does the FBI not see somebody who is a social media fixture who threatens people's lives, who walks down the streets of New York shouting insults, who's been arrested for all sorts of violations and people have reported. And yet it has the time to go investigate the Virginia school board parents controversy, or it can go out and find James O'Keefe's supposed one time encounter with the, the Biden daughter diary, or it can put under wraps Hunter laptops. It's, it's kind of, this is again and again, it reminds me of the Sarnoff brothers, you know, remember them, the Boston Marathon bombers, that the Russians of all people warned the FBI that these guys have gone into your country and they are Islamists, terrorists, and we didn't do anything. And yet it's commentary on a lot of things, but I would say something a little bit controversial with this case of the subway shooter, but also I'm trying to remember the fellow in Waukesha. Is it named Bennett? Was that his name? This is, uh, or Brooks, was it? Brooks, yeah, Brooks. Brooks. Yeah, Brooks. And he fit the same profile. Remember he had a whole social media presence where he talked about inflicting violence on white people. And yeah, the point that I'm making is it was very similar. He killed, was it six people in Waukesha and he ran down 60? Yeah. He, had, he had the hatred on there and it drew out BLM people from Milwaukee who said, you know, this is the start of a revolution. No one said anything. They were had, oh. they had said that the Rittenhouse trial was about race. It wasn't. This was a racial hate crime. And yet they didn't give a description of the guy as black initially. They kept it silent. And he did this. And my point is this, is that in the first hours, we were told what, that this guy was a dark skinned suspect Mm -hmm. and he was five, five and heavy set. And why didn't they just say he was black? That would be a helpful description because they were so, they were more worried about seeming, seeming to be politically incorrect than they were saving lives is what I'm trying to say. So they kept his race quiet for a whole day and that was unthinkable and then 
the left is very funny. They say words matter. That's what we were told. And that what you say can trickle down to a nut. So if you say anything that is politically incorrect, or perhaps even overtly or subtly or systemically racist, then some nut is going to take that and see that as a green light. Okay, I don't know if that's true or false. I can see the argument behind it. You have to be very careful about your speech because you do not know how it will affect those that are not completely all there. Yeah. And they will they will act out your rarefied abstractions into very concrete realities. Okay, so maybe this is what Mr. James did. Maybe this is what the Waukesha killer did. In other words, they listened to that drumbeat every night on MSNBC. They listened to Joy Reid. They listened to Don Lamone on CNN. They listened to Mark Milley ranting about white rage or Lloyd Austin. And do they ever say that what I'm getting at is do a Lloyd Austin or a Mark Milley in front of Congress hold up a piece of paper and say, here is this data sheet that I have of my Pentagon million person in the field, uh, Army, Navy, Air Force. And this is the percentage of the people on social media that have expressed white hatred. These are the members of the clan. These are the members. They never do that. They just said, this is a problem. Do they say, these are people that are white supremacists, proud boy, and these are the people in Antifa that we think, and these are the people in BLM, so we're going to look at extremism. No, they just spout this crap, and they don't care how it sounds. And they don't care about what the effects of it are. So what we've done is we have created this new term called white rage, white privilege, white supremacy. And notice the word white. And that means it can be Jane Fonda can be white. It can mean Elon Musk can be white. It can mean Mark Zuckerberg is white. But it can also mean the janitor in Birmingham, Alabama is white. It can also mean the unemployed forklift driver in Bakersfield is white. And then those are the oppressors collectively, without exception. And then the oppressed are what? Oprah, who's mad because some Swiss person in a boutique didn't show her right away a $38,000 crocodile purse. Remember that? (laughs) Yes, I do. Yeah. Or Michelle Obama, who says she's worried from one of her three mansions that somebody might attack her black daughter. I understand every parent has that word, but if that were to be true, it's not going to necessarily happen in her neighborhood. The assailant statistically is more likely to be black. So my point is that every black person then becomes a victim and every white person, and we have no margin for individuality. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, Tom Soul is not a victim. No. Shelby Seal doesn't feel he's a victim. The Hispanic people I see every day in these parts are upwardly mobile. That's why they're going to vote. Half of them are going to vote for a Republican candidate because they feel they don't want to be condescended as victim. And the guy in Bakersfield that drives a forklift or the tire changer in Dayton, Ohio, is not a victimizer like a Mark Zuckerberg, maybe. So it's co crazy. But yet when you do this collective and you say white, 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 it's like the South and Jim Crow saying black, 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 black. It gave no ability to individualize anything as if all white people in the South in 1945 were wonderful and all black people were terrible. Well, now yeah. we're saying all white people are terrible. And I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. You remember there was that Yale lecture 
I remember this because I wrote about it, that. I think her name was Kilalani or something. And okay. she said she had this fantasy. She gave a lecture at Yale and said, I have a fantasy, you know, and I just kind of dream of taking this revolver I have. Uh, I had it in my dream. I had a revolver and I just kind of dream. And you know what? I dreamed of shooting a white person in the head. And there was another guy, too. I think his name was Young. And he wrote in New York Times. He was a New York Times. He said, you know, whiteness, it melts the polar ice caps. It shortens our life. It pollutes our air. It, it, it destroys everybody. It kills people. And then does, does that have an effect on Daryl Brooks to hear that in the popular be reported in the media? And this yeah. guy named Ellie Mistel, he was on TV the other night, you know, attacking Herschel Walker. He's the guy who said, you know, when COVID is over, I don't think white people got any better. I'm going <laughs> to limit my exposure. His wife works for a stockbroker company. Yeah. And then there's that, I'm on a rant now, but these images are coming to me. And then there was Obama's presidential <laughs> painter. Remember that guy? Dandes, uh, Willie or Wiley or something. And he had this, his art form was black beheadings of white people. You remember that? He would take mm, classical yeah. art and he'd change it so a black person would be like Perseus and a white person would be Medusa. And they asked him about it. He was a presidential painter. He said, oh, it's kind of a kill whitey thing. <laughs> well, my point is, I think that guy's name was Brooks, the driver. And, and he and Frank James, that filters down just as the white racism filters down and they act on it. And yet there's no culpability for those people to say it. And, you know, we're going to get into a Hobbesian bellum omnia contra omnis, a war of everybody against everybody if we all disengage and go tribal. Tribalism, as I said before, is like nuclear proliferation. Once one tribe goes tribal, the other tribe says, you know what, for my own survival, I'm going tribal. And, you know, we should have learned something about yeah. what happened in uh, the 1970s in Lebanon or the 1980s in Latin America or 1990s in Rwanda and Yugoslavia or the yeah. 2000s in Iraq. The common denominator is tribalism. Yeah. So these, Nigeria. Well, yeah, yeah, somebody has yeah. to speak up and say it is not racist. It is not racist. It is not racist to say that a Joy Reid, who every single night starts to hammer white, 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 or Whoopi Goldberg talks about the Holocaust as white on white, 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 or people say the Ukrainian war is white, 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 or Mark Milley, white, white. These people are racist, and they are inciting racial violence, and it trickles down, and you get nuts of all races, but in this particular manifestation of it, you get a Brooks or a James and they will act out on it and they will tell you they're doing it. They will post social media and then, you know, maybe the mayor who everybody is very conflicted about in New York because of his contradictory statements. But when he says, you know, these types of violences represent oppression and all that, Frank James is not oppressed. He's certainly not starving. He was maybe you could say he was mentally unstable, but he had a whole history of threatening people. What he said on those videos about Asian people was some of the most vile, racist hatred in the world. I think people are going to have to say, I don't care what your race is. If you express a racist thought, you are a racist. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care what color you are. If you do that, that's going to trickle down to every nut. And your particular type of racism is going to be a justification for him to act on it. Yeah. And so... To that psychiatrist, 
in New York who went to Yale and gave a lecture and said she wants, she dreams of shooting white people in the head. And that was all over the media. People like you are responsible for triggering these crazy races. They're waiting out there for some little green button to be pushed. Yeah, some validation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I hear it, you know, all the time in universities. When I see this work, we've got to confess our white privilege. There's two things I think. You live on a different planet than most people. And number two, you are privileged. If you want to confess your white privilege, then just say the following. As a wealthy, white, elite, zip code, blue chip, influential, privileged person, I want to confess my white emphasis of that. But I do not speak of the 230 so-called white people in the United States. I don't speak for 75 of them who are poor and live before below the poverty line or in the lower middle class. I don't speak for them. They live in a world I can't even imagine. And they have nothing in common with me because they share the same pigmentation. They They don't have Latino maids and they do not have people doing their yard work. They're just different. And I don't live in the same world as they do. I wish they'd say that. Yes, I think maybe it's breaking down because my impression in academia is that they don't know how to get away from making all of the people of color or the marginalized people victims, but they want to, and they want to impress on us agency, but they can't have both of those things at once. So it's starting to be quite a quandary for anybody in academia. You know, do you say this particular group were all victims or are you going to pull out the people in that group that had agency and did things no, and can't do try that. to say you, you can't have it both ways, you know, it's so. very Marxist. That's right out of Das Kapital that there's whole collectives that are, you know, oppressors or Mausel bread book. These are the oppressors. You always have to have a collective that makes no allowances for individuality. Yeah. And it used to be defined by class or income yeah. or inheritance. Now it's classified by race not class. Uh, Okay, Victor. So we need to take a moment for a few messages and we'll come right back. And I still have a few things on this case to talk to you about, but let's first listen to these messages. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Okay, welcome back. And Victor, where was the... New York Police Department and all this, because Frank James turned himself in and, in fact, called Crime Stoppers, I think, to turn himself in. And so the whole case went on around where the cops were running all over New York. Who knows what they were doing? And 
it sounded like Frank James was out on an eating spree and then he decided, well, you know, I'm going to call. Well, they had a description of where was he going to go. That's so, I mean, true. Everybody... He was in a pickle. <laughs> so my point is, well, you're, I think your point is of this self-congratulatory society. So every time there's sort of an obvious arrest, we get this lecture from the FBI, how wonderful and brave and heroic they are. And there are many agents, but they never say anything about the San Bernardino terrorists that they missed or the Sarna brothers they missed or why they are, you know, storming somebody's house that's a Trump supporter or something like that, or James O'Keefe, they're going after him, or they're bragging that they're undercover at the uh, school board meetings, or they help stage the kidnapping of a Michigan, supposedly help stage a fantasy of kidnapping the Michigan governor. They never tell us about that. So yeah, but that's a therapeutic society. Everybody, you know, something happens in a tragedy and I don't care what the tragedy is, where it's a school shooting or a fire. And I understand first people, but before you hear anything, the person gets up and starts thanking thousands of people. And I'm thinking, and often when you read the details, it's some guy was driving along the side of the road and he just jumped out and saved the person. And so that's self-congratulation is, is, a, is a trademark of this society. And, and you see it everywhere. In university, yeah. I'm always shocked when somebody talks about Dean Solon and Professor so-and-so. I think if you people are so great, then how did you cook up a system where $1.7 trillion in student debt as you raise the price of tuition, room and board, higher than the rate of inflation? Or why are students leaving your university with less knowledge on when they came in? And you're congratulating yourself all the time. Yeah. It's just, it's kind of insidious. Yeah, it sure is. And the last thing on this, Frank James, is they're obviously going to mount an insanity defense of him. But my hope is that we'll get a judge like in the Juicy Smollett case and there'll be some reckoning and not. There was no reckoning. Well, Sammy, he's out. Okay, but he got a lecture. He did get a lecture. He got a lecture. (laughs) And then he said, oh, poor Joe, it's really cruel in prison. My life will be threatened by horrible white racists. They let him out. And what did the first thing he do? He did a video or a rap song or something where he accused everybody of being racist and he was completely innocent. Uh, yeah. They should have made him go to jail for all of the racial strife that he conjured up and the lies under oath that he spread and yeah. all the damage he did to the police department. And there was no. Yeah, they've got to they've got to stop Biden. letting these guys off on these insanity. What did he what did Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden have in common? Not their sonality or but beyond their sonality. They both were one of the first to sympathize with Juicy when he concocted that fantasy and what a racist uh, country, along with Kamala Harris. They can't just take a deep breath is what I'm saying and say, hmm, yeah. I don't think you can throw bleach on somebody at two in the morning and put a rope around their neck while they eat a sandwich and call on their cell phone and beat you off with Kung Fu like kick. <laughs> just a little crazy for white MAGA people to know empire episode by episode and to be into a liberal, you know, prowling around with a noose in hand, waiting for somebody to symbolically lynch like Juicy. And so <laughs> they should have known that, but they didn't care. It yeah. was it was redukes of the Covington kids, the Duke lacrosse. Some point it's all going to accumulate. And 
I don't think this election in November is about race, but I do think it's about Joe Biden and this hard left agenda, whether we define it as not prosecuting crimes or the crime wave or the smash and grab phenomenon or the inflation or the energy or the open book, but there is a reckoning coming. And I think it's, I don't think these political scientists are aware of it. They keep murmuring things like, they do the following. If you notice, Sammy, they'll say things like, well, there are people who think they think they could be 50 seats, but that would be something because <laughs> because the House is unlike 2010. It, it's almost even, and the Senate is even, and five Senate, that would be amazing. You'd get like a 55 or 56. That couldn't happen. Well, yeah, it can happen because a lot of people say, you know what, I'm a Democrat, but I'm not a Democrat with $7 diesel fuel. Yeah. I'm a Democrat, but I'm not a Democrat when I go down to Beverly Hills and somebody follows me home to take my Mercedes and hit me over the head and take my Rolex. And I'm yeah. a Democrat as long as my kid can get into Harvard or Stanford, but not when they use race and gender against him after I paid, you know, $300,000 for prep school. Not That's testy my Democratic, you know, fides. And so yeah. a lot of these people are going to go into those polls and they're going to look around. <laughs> are they going <laughs> to, the, knowing the left-wing mind, they'll be home with their mail-in ballot and they will check a Republican and then they'll look around their own home and see if anybody's watching over their shoulder. They're so guilt-ridden. <laughs> And then they'll go to their cocktail party and say, oh, we lost. I, I voted. We, you know, we lost. And they're going to vote opposite of what they say because they have no choice. This is Armageddon that this party is leading us to. Yeah, it sure is. Well, let's turn then to a grim, but maybe, I don't know, I want to say hopeful or inspiring situation in the Black Sea. We have a ship, the Moskva, that was sunk somehow. The Russians claimed that it was an accidental, the ammunition area was blown up. And the Ukrainians say that they sunk it with their Neptune missiles. So very interesting because it was the flagship for the Russian fleet in the Black Sea. And so some exciting news in the Ukrainian war, but exciting, but I don't see the war quite ending. But what are your thoughts on the war in Ukraine? Well, everybody has a thought about the strategic outcome and then what the negotiations are going to look at. And we've all pointed this out on numerous podcasts that Ukraine's got 43 million people and they've got 148. They've got 30 times of territory, 10 times the GDP. So Ukraine has some advantages because you do need a three to one supposedly proverbial margin attacker versus defender. And they are being supplied not by a country or two, but by the whole Western world, which has a much greater capacity of munitions production than does Russia. So there are ways of thinking. So now they've sunk a ship. We don't know how they did it. They claim it was an indigenously built, adopted old Soviet rocket system that they refabricated into a shore-to-ship attack weapon. I think if that's true, the Russians may have hit the factory and it won't be there, but it may be that these are harpoon missiles, which Joe Biden refused to sell. And somebody in that administration changed policy and they did sell them and they don't want to tell people that was an American or European made weapon. But in a larger sense, it's kind of scary because, I mean, there were reported two nuclear weapons on that ship. And that was the Moscow was the pride of the Russian fleet. By that, I mean, it was supposedly somewhat like our Aegis class 
frigate carrier destroyer. We don't really have the same World War II classifications of destroyer, escort destroyer, light cruiser, medium cruiser, heavy cruiser, battleship, based on the tonnage of displacement. But this thing was about 12,000 tons, which would have made it a heavy cruiser in World War II. And last time one was sunk, was remember in the Falklands War, the Belgrano, and there were 300,000 people on that ship, 350. This had, because it's automated, it had about 500 people that got off, supposedly. When they say it was a pride of the Russian fleet, it wasn't the size. But remember Putin's 10 years ago bragged that he was going to redo the military and particularly the Navy. And this was the crown jewel of the Black Sea Fleet. When you see an aerial picture of the Russian ships at the military base at Crimea, it just dwarfs the other Russian ships. And it was supposed to be a Western style, sophisticated radar, computer equipped ship with all sorts of defense mechanisms. Although being Russian, if you look at their munitions mentality going back to World War II and before, it's always offense, 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 offense. It's never survivability or defense. In other words, you build a tank, you want it to be able to inflict punishment, artillery, inflict punishment, not make sure the tank shells are in a water encased box at the rear of the tank so it won't blow up the crew, that they're expendable. So I doubt very seriously whether this had the level of aegis protection that you would find on its western counterpart and so but my getting that larger point it's like the spanish civil war you know from 36 all the way to 39 that was the laboratory for world war ii so that was the first appearance of stukas that was the whole idea of close uh, air support for blitzkrieg there was little tankettes that were used and it really showed that although the soviet Weapons were pretty good, who backed the Republicans. The nationalists had German and Italian weapons. They tended to be a lot better, and their German advisors were a lot better. And that was supposedly a prequel to what happened in 1939 in Poland. I think it was accurate. And then you remember, um, I think it was November of 1940, first year of the war, uh, the British decided that Toronto to hit the Italian fleet. And they came in, they had carriers with torpedoes, specially modified torpedoes for the shallow waters. And they sunk a battleship and injured and basically forced Mussolini to take his beautiful new battleships and move them far to the north out of Mediterranean airspace. But it was the first one I'm getting at, a carrier torpedo surprise attack. And that was a year before Pearl Harbor. But that was the blueprint that woke the Japanese up and said, my God, we could do this to Pearl Harbor. So when you look at all this, and the Chinese are looking at this, they're thinking, hmm, so one little missile or two, maybe with some drone help of distracting the defenses, this took out a multi-billion dollar ship, which was providing, you know, sort of radar support, missile support, battery attacks, cruise missiles for a large area of that theater. So what does this tell us about going into Taiwan? And one Chinese general is saying, ah, this is really good because it shows you that we have thousands of these ship-to-shore missiles, and they're better than these indigenously made Ukrainian ones. So when they put that U.S. Pacific fleet out there, we can just pick off just a dozen missiles. It'll go through it. And the other general said, hmm, yes, we're better than the Ukrainians, but maybe the American defenses are much better than the Soviet, uh, the Russian. And then they're also thinking... But wait a minute, we're going to need some kind of ships to get our guys over to Taiwan, right? 
Yeah. We can't just parachute them in because there's going to be tens of hundreds of thousands of them. And what if the Taiwanese look at this and all of a sudden they say to the Americans, we need 10,000 harpoons over the next three years. And we're going to put them in bunkers, air, you know, bomb-proof bunkers along. We're going to ring our shore with them. And we'll be able to sink these Chinese ships with hundreds or thousands of Chinese soldiers on them up to 40 miles away from our coast, halfway. They won't even get, they'll get halfway and we'll be able to sink them. So I think this is unfortunately a laboratory and we're looking at a whole new type of war that, you know, this is always happens in war. There's a challenge, a response, a counter challenge, a counter response. The same thing is going on with armor. A lot of people are saying $2 million, $3 million tank and a guy with a shoulder javelin, an $80,000 weapon or a cheaper British version or a cheaply made a Russian knockoff in Ukraine made can knock out these Soviet tanks. And there's just like teams rolling. This is the future war. Then somebody else said, ah, yes, this is an aspect of war. But when it gets down to the nitty gritty and you're in eastern Ukraine and the sweeping plains, if you put little teams, you know, in furrows, irrigation furrows or behind one tree in an open expanse, a tank from two miles away with has pretty good armor with sensors with air support will blast those people out and they won't even be able, you need tanks to get near them that are better, you know, can get near the tanks. So yeah. to fight, fight the Russians. Now you need traditional artillery and you need traditional tanks, maybe in the streets of Kiev or the suburbs, you, javelins will do that. So each person is trying to figure out in this laboratory, what it entails for the future of the near future of warfare. Well, speaking of the laboratory, I read one article, and I don't know if this is true or not, but that the Turkish military provided a distraction for the ship and its defenses with drones, and that the Ukrainians then hit it from the other side with their missile. Now, obviously, we don't know if that's true, and Turkey seems to be wanting to take a neutral ground, so I'm not sure if they would aid the Ukrainians in that fashion. But, you know, the drones also play into that laboratory or can yeah. be interesting. Yeah, fashion. as long as you don't you say the word Turkey did, it's Turkey supplies drones for a price. And yeah. Ukraine finds them cheaper than what we give them or previously had sold them or Europe had sold them. And cheaper in the sense of for every dollar per pound of drone, so to speak, they're a cost of benefit, pretty good deal. They're not as good as Americans or Europeans, but they're a hell of a lot cheaper. And yeah. so they're buying them in mass from the Turks. And so, yeah, supposedly they had two or three of these things that came over and, you know, maneuvered around and all of their air defense systems fixated on these threats. And that gave for a brief moment a pathway through the radar field by which these two missiles were able to come undetected. That's a theory. But Turkey, when they define neutrality, they mean not passive neutrality, but active neutrality, i.e., we're going to make money. <laughs> so this is a golden opportunity. So we're going to cut deals with the Russians. We're going to say, you know what? You want to come out of the Black Sea? We can just shut it down. You'll be cooped up. Here's the price. Yeah. You want to get around sanctions. We're here to help you. You need banks and ATMs and apartments for your oligarchs. They can't go anywhere else and they need to you know, monitor the business. Move them to Constantinople for a price. Yeah. 
And then they tell the Ukrainians, we can sell you all the, the drones you want at double the normal price. And the Russians are not going to do a thing because we have leverage. And they're going to tell the Russians, we're going to do all you want. The Ukrainians are not going to do a thing because we have leverage. We're selling them drones. And the, if the Russians say, but you're killing us, they're saying, yeah, and we're saving more of you by opening up the Red Sea. And and then the Ukrainians saying, but you're killing us with your sanction buster. And they said, you want your drones or not? So that's the way the Turks are operating. Erdogan. Yeah, no, nothing wrong with a good businessman, I suppose. But the, my last question is on the expansion of the war. You were talking about, well, it's a test. It's a laboratory and China might be testing, putting its toe in the water at some point. But how long or, or would Putin ever consider something like, well, look at all of these allied powers sending weapons. I'm fighting them anyway, so I might as well expand this war since the Ukrainians are getting so many supplies from all the various directions. I mean, I could easily see them expanding into Poland since, you know, a lot of things are coming through Poland or maybe some of the other countries on the... No, he cannot go and he will not go into Poland. Why is that? Uh, unless it's it turns nuclear, tactically nuclear. He can't. He doesn't have the wherewithal because... Uh-huh. For all of the flabby incompetence of NATO, it's heads above the Russian army when the Russian army leaves its home territory. NATO would not do well going into Russia, but you take that army and turn it into an expeditionary force that requires sophisticated communications and logistics, and it'll flop. And Mm. NATO has better planes, better pilots, better armor as good artillery, better drone capability. And there's 30 nations and they're backed up by the United States. They've just increased their defense budget by $100 million. So they would destroy any Russian column that went into a NATO country. if they. And I think they have the will finally to do that. So he won't do that. But there are rules that emerged out of the Cold War. And the rules were simply this. The world can survive a asymmetrical war with a nuclear power and a non-nuclear or a minor nuclear power, a Yugoslavia bombing campaign, an Iraq, two Iraq wars, two Afghan wars, one Russian, one American, and nobody intervenes that's a major power. And we're talking basically France and Britain, they have about 170 nukes to 200, Pakistan with 200. India probably with 300, but especially the United States with 6,200 and the Soviets with 7,500. Maybe the Chinese are by now up to three or 500. My point is this, that there were rules and you allow supply of your enemy. So we're fighting in Korea and we don't go across the Yalu River and go start bombing Manchuria. And then in exchange, the Russians don't intervene. So what they do is they give Russian pilots and MiG-15s and they supply and they even fly and they have anti-aircraft batteries, but they don't actively say they are. And we know that, but we don't escalate to using nuclear weapons to stop them. In Vietnam, they have Russian pilots, they have Russian advisors, 40,000 of them. They're going right into the harbor of Haiphong and unloading Russian weapons. The North Vietnamese would have lost that war in year two without Soviet weapons. They just gave them anything they want. Same thing about the Middle East wars, especially the 73 war. When they gave them anti-tank weapons and shoulder-fired surface-to-air missiles, they almost devastated Israeli armor. And nobody said, 
this is all coming from Russia. And Russian advisors are in Egypt, and therefore Russia is responsible. So we're going to nuke them if they don't stop. And I can say the same thing about Iran supplying shape charges that killed hundreds of Americans in the 2003 Iraq war. And Afghanistan, the Russians were supplying the Taliban. That were the rules. So when this thing came along, the Americans are telling the Russians, you made the rules. You always intervened against us. You supplied it. We could have won all these wars if it hadn't been for you. We lost Vietnam because you supplied these people. We lost in Afghanistan because you supplied them. We lost, basically, we got bogged down in Iraq because you sent thousands of arms to these Baathists. You probably armed ISIS originally. You're in Syria. We lost or we had a deadlock in Korea because you intervened. So we intervened, but then you intervened by supplying. So we're going to do the same thing you did. And that's what we're doing right now. We are flooding Ukraine just like you did with Vietnam and Korea and all these other wars. That's the rules. So you're not supposed to escalate to nuclear war. You're supposed to find a way to stop it. If you can't, and we couldn't, we couldn't find a solution once you armed our enemies to the teeth and turned it into a war of liberation against imperialism and the insurrectionaries were well armed. So what we're doing is we're calling you imperialist and neo-colonialist and we're calling the Ukrainians an insurrectionary war of liberation. And wow, they're going to get better weapons than you are. And don't dare go nuclear because we never did in the past. And we'll see if Putin plays by the rule. There's one yeah. thing that nobody can figure out. You get all these weird, 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 weird stories that he's pumped up on steroids, that he's suffering from colon cancer, that he's gone through bouts of chemotherapy and radiation, that he's in some bunker, that he's paranoid about having no immune system and doesn't want anybody around him. So he's completely cut off from most human contact communications. And he feels he's dying. And if he's feeling he's dying, he would like to be the bold savior of the former Soviet empire. And, and maybe if he can't, he will be considered a martyr. And that makes him very dangerous if he's cornered. Yeah. So what our president's doing is very, very dangerous. He's doing the two worst things you can do in the game of strategic deterrence. He's mouthing off butcher, murder, bully, genocidal. He's, oh, Mr. Zelensky, if you want to get out, we're going to give you a ride out of Ukraine. <laughs> let's, let's get that embassy out right away. It's too dangerous for us. Oh, Let's not sell them harpoon missiles. Ah, Trump gave them javelins. That was enough. Oh, Mr. Putin, please pump oil. If you're going to go into Ukraine, pump oil before you do. Oh, don't touch those companies or those entities. There are 16 of them. Here's a list. Please don't hack them. That is what we're doing. And then we're calling them a murder. And that just enrages a person. Kind of like you're in high school, yeah. in a bad high school. And I went to what would be called a rough high school. And, and there was some guy who just kept saying, hey, you asshole. Hey, you blank bang. Hey, you monk. And then he never could back it up. And finally, you'd watch some guy just say, you know what? I am tired of that and walk over and just knock him out. Shut the <laughs> blank up. Or, you know, some guy, once in a while, you'd see a guy that said, hey, hey you're an ass. You know, he'd call him names. He said, what are you going to do about it? And the guy goes, I'm sick of your name calling. You go, and they would duke it out. But that was rare. Yeah. Often people will... If they are not able to establish real deterrence, they think they can substitute it with verbal deterrence. That's a deadly misconception. That's what Barack Obama did. He kept saying, if they move that stuff around, 
They moved those WMD. That's a game changer. That's a red line. That was in Syria. And, you know, he said the other day, I had to fight everybody to, to control Putin. No, you didn't. You didn't control him. You gave him, a, you gave him the Middle East. He went crazy in Syria because you invited him in after four years of absence. You dismantled missile defense and had it on a platter so he'd behave for a year or two during your re-election. Then he gobbled up Ukraine, eastern Ukraine. Biden, everybody said he's full of bluster and braggadocio, the corn pop Biden. That's just a continuation of Obama was that way. Obama was always... I'm the hero of all my own fantasies. But when it got yeah. down to real tough decisions, the only good thing about a good thing in the strategic sense, not a moral sense, is Obama was like Biden. And he didn't care about people. He is totally self-absorbed, narcissistic, egocentric, callous. So that mm-hmm. guy, you know what? He could he could do whatever he wanted. He didn't. Benghazi, <laughs> you think he missed a sleep? He didn't care about those guys that died in Benghazi. Didn't yeah. care at all. You know, you know, all he cared about was, well, send, we can still send people from Sicily and save them. Well, I'm up for election. Can't do that. <laughs> Can't do that. Or he definitely uh, wasn't the father of the nation, huh? Susan Rice. <laughs> Taking care. Bla- yeah. Black woman. Do I have solidarity with Susan Rice? I appoint. Not really. She's going to be more believable when she lies because you can't touch her because of her race and gender. So I'm going to send her out five times on the talk shows to lie, 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 lie. And that's her problem if she ruined her reputation. No skin off me. That's how he believes. He's utterly amoral and callous. And so is Biden. They don't care about people. You, I said to Joe Biden, if you sat him down and you said, Mr. Biden, I'm your advisor, Ron Klain. Now, this is a problem. And I want to be very careful. I'm not blaming you. I want to say this very, very, very methodically and clearly. We shut down Anwar. We canceled the pipeline at Keystone, which would have been open. We put all new federal leases off limits. We told our lending agencies, our government bureaucracies, our investors in this country not to lend to frackers. We told them, you said on the campaign you would end all fossil fuels. You created a very terrible psychological climate. And now diesel fuel is $7 a gallon on the West Coast. And a poor trucker who's going from Los Angeles to Virginia, he has two 100-gallon tanks. And that's 200 gallons, and he has to pay $7 a gallon, $7 a gallon. So do the math. These people were paying, what, $1,400? Yeah. $1,400 to fill up. That's impossible for a poor trucker. And that's his insurance. And we have to empathize with him. And you know what Biden would say? (laughs) Here's the deal, man. You know, let me tell you about corn pop. Hey, junkie. <laughs> hey, fat. Who do I shake yeah. my hand to? He didn't care. He never did before he lost his mind. They don't care about people. That's why they're leftists, because they create this facade, this rhetorical facade of therapeutic caring. And once you do that verbally, then you can act physically and material in the real world any way you damn please, because you have squared that circle. Yeah. It's like you're a medieval sinner. All right. Victor, we need to take. Is that a, a sarcastic? Moment or so. All right. 
<laughs> well, I was just thinking when you said that he can't be a good person. And I, I hesitate to say this, but he can't be a good person and have a son like Hunter. <laughs> when you were talking, I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, he's, there's something wrong with him. Hunter's His a son biblical is like, bad seed. I guess, on top of being raised by Joe Biden. No, as a former farmer, I can tell you that you can go buy from the nursery 650, 750 vines per acre, and you can plant 100 acres, and you will walk by and they'll all be uniform. And guess what? There was some screw up because every row there's going to be two sickly, weak, pathetic vines. And who did it? I don't know. So you can't blame the nurserymen. No. Nature intervened and created something. Because I do think that, I, I don't believe that, you know, there's this, nature is everything, but it's something. And there's that symbiosis between nurture and nature and environment. That's true. But the eccentricity with which Hunter let himself be abandoned to must surely come a little bit from the action. No, no, I keep saying this to you, Sammy. Nobody listens. I keep telling you, it's very easy to figure out Hunter Biden. Okay. They always say Hunter, Hunter, Hunter. Let me ask you a question. If Joe Biden was the Chamber of Commerce head in, I don't know, Flint, Michigan, whatever, would Hunter have had a career? If he did, no. it would be very, like a little county crook. No. Yeah. <laughs> if he was a member, if he was a House representative from Delaware or Rhode Island, no, he would have none. If he was a senator, he would have none. I mean, there's what, 100 senators? Every one of their families are probably conniving to get, you know, but they're doing things like put your wife on the payroll or chief of staff or campaign. It's mild stuff. But you put somebody as vice president of the United States with aspirations to be president, and you have all these foreign governments, I think that family is something that I got to spread my money, and that will be one of the people I want to buy off, then that creates a hunter. And then he does, his dad says, Hunter, I'm going to be vice president for eight years. And this Biden family has spent their whole life in quote unquote public service. And what do we have? Nothing. So I want a big house near the ocean, and I want a big heated pool. And I want Jill to have one of the nicest landscape estates around. And then I want a nice pad in you know, Washington. I need another coastal thing. And then the rest is yours. So go to it. Just drop my name everywhere. Make me do some photo ops. Write some recommendations for Chinese Communist Party's kids. I don't know. Get Bob Alinsky or whoever these guys, Heinz, get them all in here. Cash in. And that's what he did. And, sure, then, he, so- and, then, and then he do the Joe Biden from Scranton Tough Guy. Vice President Biden, have you talked to your son about what the hell are you talking about? The Biden family is like gold, that name, you know, that kind of stuff. Or they, some little meek little mouse in the State Department go over and write a little memo, very concerned about the vice VP's activities vis-a-vis China as it might impair diplomatic relations or flex. And then he would call, who's that SOB that wrote this memo? I want him fired. How dare he say that? Or he'd go to the council in foreign relations. Hey, you know, and I told that SOB, you'll be fired, no more aid. That's how he operates. Yeah. And, so, and that was hard on Hunter because he was the dirty bad guy. He was Fredo. And they yeah. made fun of him and they did that. And so he finally got up and he thought, you know what? As he wrote to his own daughter, I gave him 50% sometimes. I'm not t- asking for half. 
he, you know, Mr. Big Guy got 10%, but sometimes he took half of everything I made. I paid his bills, his phone bill, his repairs. I fixed that seawall. And all he does, he allows the press to call me a creepy cokehead or a sex, <laughs> a sex crazed monster. And dad is a creation of me, not me of him. So you know what I'm going to do? This is what he's thinking. I'm going to be crazy. And I am going to be an artist that writes, uh, paints with my nose or something, and it's going to be trash. And I'm going to sell it for $500,000 a canvas and get every creepy lobbyist from every creepy government buying it. I'm going to smile to the press and see how dad and the family like that. And then they're going to know that if you keep, you know, voicing the hunter narrative, I can be even crazier dad. Because I created you and you're a rich man and Jill and you had the good life because I was sorted. That's how he thinks. You know, he leaves a crack pipe in a car. He leaves, what, two laptops he loses? And I mean, it's not deliberate, but it is deliberate. And he's so, he didn't care. He's Yeah, it's his recreation. I had a member of my family. I I don't want to, people might listen to it, but I had a very, you know, public minded person in my family and they would take people in my family on excursions and sometimes they you know they had a tight schedule and sometimes some of the kids would get out on a boat on a lake and it would be time to go and the person who was the disciplinarian in charge would say it's time to go and the person would be sitting there on the boat saying can't hear you <laughs> that's my hunter paddle. that's yeah, hunter that's <laughs> hunter and like it said and they had all the leverage didn't they because all they had to do was stay yeah. out in the boat. And nobody's going to leave a 10 or 12 year old kid at a lake and you can't, yeah. get, you can't get to them. And they know <laughs> that when they paddle in, they're going to get disciplined. So they're not going to paddle in and prolong it. <laughs> he, Hunter's so a famous, he knows that he's got a rendezvous with a bad ending, whether it's prison or ridicule or OD. And until that happens, He's telling Joe, I am untouchable. You tell your flunky little kiss ass aides and staffers and Jen Saki to lay off old Hunter. Yeah. <laughs> because if you, I thought, think... if you thought that art stuff scam was bad, I can, I can double and triple that scam. Yeah. I think we've seen the beginning of the end, at least, you know, yeah, he is he's embarrassing. Of... You can't embarrass a bureaucrat. So if you're a federal prosecuting attorney in New York or yeah, you've convinced yeah, Delaware, me yeah, Washington. Oh, you can't yeah. keep it on because it's just so flagrant now. No taxation on this hidden income, uh, cash payments, bribery. It's just, it's so embarrassing that there's going to be somewhere Dudley do right in a federal uh, attorney's office, and he's going to go up to his boss and said, "I am a public servant, and this is wrong. And if you don't file charges and run an investigation, I were going to resign, and I'm going to go to the press." And that will have a, you know what I mean? Is that it's Guy like, Pierce in that L.A. Confidential? Or didn't he play that kind part? Of like, yeah, he did. That's a, good, <laughs> that's a good Guy Pierce did do that. And uh, he blew the whistle and he was willing to go down and destroy himself, sort of, he thought. Yeah. And that's There are always people like that. That's what's good about this country. And yeah, every absolutely. every terrible, dysfunctional, corrupt bureaucracy, there's always one or two people who they're kind of like, you know, that movie network. I can't take it anymore. Go out and scream. We're not going to take it anymore. And there are a few people like that. that are willing to Samson light, pull the columns and bring the house down on everybody. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, uh, I was going to some messages. So let's take a moment for those messages and we'll be right back. 
VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back. I want to remind everybody that Victor is the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College, that he is available at his website, victorhanson.com, and on a series of social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and we have Getter and MeWe as well. So all sorts of sites you can contact him. We're looking Looking into starting a locals channel as well, where there will be live discussions that Victor will have and people will be able to come participate. So we're excited about that. It hasn't quite gotten to the end point of the beginning, but we'll get there. And so now we're on the last part of this show, Victor. We wanted to talk to you. I know that you've taught the Gospels before, or some of the Gospels, and you've read them in Greek. And so I was wondering if we could hear a little bit about the significance, you know, to the Christians of the Gospels. And I think you were particularly interested, or you've done a lot with the Gospel of John. So how about you tell us the important things about it? We know for 20 years, I taught uh, introductory and advanced Greek, and uh, I used Chase and Phillips. And over the semesters, that was the standard text of the time. I think it's still the best, but that would be subject to a lot of disagreement. And anyway, in the final few weeks, I was always looking for accessible Greek. So the first two or three years I've taught, you know, kind of channeling what I did in graduate schools as I did as an undergraduate and believing nobody would read the New Testament at UC Santa Cruz in 1970. So I would try Lysias uh, against On the Cripple, or I would read Xenophon's, not the Hellenica, but maybe portions of the Anabasis that were really good, Thalassa, Thalassa, or maybe even a little segment of the Medea from Euripides, things that would be comprehensible after a couple or 300 hours of Greek, both in class and the students. But then I started to read the New Testament. John, I had done that in an intensive thing when I was 18, a wonderful teacher, graduate professor at Yale. He was a graduate student, John Madden, and he had been Religiously, I think he was at one point thinking he was going to be a priest, but the point is he had us read John and it made a profound impression on me reading it in Greek. And I had only read it once. I think my grandmother gave me 10 cents for every 100 pages I read of the New Testament when I was a kid. She was a very strong Methodist, but I didn't really understand it. And then, then when I started teaching, I didn't know which of the so I would try Mark or Luke or, or Matthew, and they were too difficult. They were not that difficult, but they're difficult if you only had. So then John is, is written, you know, by probably one of the disciples, John, and not the revelation of John. And he probably wrote it somewhere, I don't know, 70 to 80. I'm just thinking off the top of my head, uh, AD, and it was compiled, edited, and published by church fathers say around 90 to 100. So it is not that far from the proposed death in the 30s and 40s of Jesus Christ. And it's easy. He was probably not a native Greek speaker, maybe Aramaic speaker. So people, when English is their second language, 
often the vocabulary is more repetitive. So I think you could look at the New Testament and if you had a vocabulary of six to 800 words, you could probably follow 70% of it. And the word order on like Latin and some sophisticated Greek, maybe non-prose text is subject, verb, predicate. So it was comprehensible and I taught it for 20 years. And boy, some years we just sailed through it. And just thinking back, and I try to read it, I try to read Mark, Luke, or John sometimes, but John's very different. You know, it starts in te arche ain o logos. In the beginning was the logos, logos. And it's this, uh, I don't know if you'd call it Gnostic, but it's this idea that Christianity and the Christian God is not just a matter of divine power and morality, but it's also logos. It has a thinking component to it, that this divine plan is very, very sophisticated. And you intellectuals out there who want to poke holes in it and think it's just, you know, spontaneous or wrong, it, it's, it's a product of a very sophisticated view of nature and man, and there is a rationale to it. And John understands that, and he's trying to explain. And that permeates the text so that I guess what separates John from the other three to one degree is these miracles, turning water into wine, for example, bringing Lazarus back from the dead. And they're not presented necessarily as tricks, you know, as uh, miracles that he's a wizard or, uh, you know, that those series of texts in the 1970s, you know, Jesus, the magician, they're just saying he was one of the tricksters. A lot of people yeah. wrote about that. No, no, they're not just tricks. They're not even, they're not tricks or miracles that Jesus is able to ask God to do for him, but they're signs, they're connections with divinity. So he's trying to show you things like part the curtain for a second, and these things can happen as if these happens all the time that God is capable of anything. So he's not doing them. He's sort of saying, okay, we need wine and God is capable of that. Just watch what happens. I, I'm just a witness as you are to it. So they're divine signs rather than miracles that he can concoct himself. And that's, again, it it's characterizes this thinking element of the, of the Bible. I know we're out of time almost, but you know, another component is that in the latter chapters of John with the crucifixion and resurrection and that it's not quite the emphasis of Mark, Luke, and Matthew that Jesus came onto the earth to die for our sins. It is, but there's another component that it's less sacrificial. In other words, according to some of the emphases on the life of Jesus, he is God incarnate, the Son of God, and he's here to take upon the burden of sin and then to give you a New Testament. In other words, that the sinner who's violated the canons of the Old Testament can still find paradise and peace with God if he confesses his sins. And he can do that because the Son of God came here and suffered on the cross for the sins and forgave his perpetrators. And then that established a new rule. But that's in John, but it's also more... I'm only here for a tie. I'm visiting you. I want to feel God needs to feel like it is to be carnate, to have a body and have temptation. And then I'm naturally being recycled back to where I came from. And my exposure to you and knowledge of the physicality of man, 
I get a deeper appreciation of the fallen nature of man. But while there's a sacrificial element, it's not emphasized as much, if yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. And so you don't get, and then of course, it's kind of eerie because this person comes out of nowhere, like all the gospels and says, only through me can you find everlasting, the water of life. And that's because I am the true emissary of God. And John the Baptist is much more prominent, I think, in the gospel, John, with his prescience that Jesus is coming. So it's much more personal. It made a profound effect on me. So the more as someone who started out through graduate school and as exposed to eight years undergraduate and four years graduate school of what I would say, I guess I could say that without being deprecatory, because I have a lot of respect for my professors, but I always approach Greek from agnostic or atheistic professors. And when there was a mention of the New Testament, it was always implied that there was another group of classicists that weren't really classicists. These were New Testament scholars. And unlike people who learn Greek for an appreciation of the ancient world and to reconstruct what happened and the beauty of its literature and its influence in the West, they were more limited in the sense that they wanted to find the word of God in its original expression or close to it as they could find it. And therefore, they never, we always say, you know, anybody who can read Pindar in Greek or an Aeschylean chorus or Thucydidean speech with 10 minutes of prep can just go race through the New Testament, even though some of the vocabulary has specialized liturgical meaning. That's not true for a New Testament scholar. They may be able to spend their life and know what these the canonical vocabulary is. But you put them and try to read a poem of Prindar and they're lost. So there was kind of an arrogance that this was a bastardized version. And I was oh. prejudiced by that and biased. And so when I began teaching it, because I was teaching it in Cal State Fresno. So a lot of the students I had were Hispanic Catholics or Oklahoma diasporas, Church of Christ types, or uh, a lot of Asian, Southeast Asian Catholics. And they would ask me religious questions rather than just grammar and syntax as I had learned it. And they had much more influence on me than I did, although I never tried to ever teach you know, religion is good or bad, or anything. I was just neutral. But finally, over the years, I began reading it on my own. And one of the things I drew from John that I didn't from Mark, Luke, and Matthew was that the religious experience was possible with a direct relationship with Jesus Christ that could, it would be nurtured and enhanced by a formal church and an organization of disciples. But it wasn't impossible to be a good Christian, if you could read and understand the words of Christ right out of his own mouth. And if you were to try to emulate, at least try to emulate the type of morality and the belief in a hereafter, and you were willing to also develop from the text a sense where you're sinning and how you have to improve or confess your sin, or at least have an appreciation for them, then you could become a Christian without like say in modern terms, becoming a formal Methodist that goes every Sunday. And that yeah. wasn't necessarily because you were lazy, because yeah. it's not lazy to master the original language of the New Testament and know Latin as well and read the Vulgate. The way I read it all, I'd always, when I would prep for class, because I taught Latin and Greek only, I only taught Latin and Greek for 10, 15 years until I started teaching in translation, humanities or history courses. But to make sure that I would have a little 
Bible, the New Testament on one page would be Greek, and then there would be St. Jerome's Vulgate translation. So if I was at a stoplight, bam, I open it up, read the Greek, and then just read how the Latin, and from that I really understood how the Roman mind or Latin looked at certain Greek words and translated them into Latin that were different than the way we vision today. And that gave me a deeper appreciation for how it was envisioned by non-Greek speakers, very different than non-English speakers. So what I'm trying to say is a secular agnostic experience became deep religious over the years. And, yeah. Uh, I read them. It seemed like every time I'm sick, that's a kind of a confession of weakness. And I've been, you know, I've had I don't know, eight or seven or eight major operations, some of them life-threatening, torn ureter, ruptured appendix in Libya. I always, you know, would go back to that. So are you trying to say that the reading it in Greek, you saw in John, at least the personal experience was more emphasized, whereas the as it was translated into Latin, they, you know, the communal mysteries and sacred nature of the miracles, et cetera, was emphasized more or something to that effect? I think effect? the is difference that- is when Jerome and the church, let's say, between, I mean, there are these church fathers were organizing that, you know, in Greek, it's the diatheke kine, the fresh interpretation. They don't mean new literature necessarily, but it's a new take on Christianity. And they compiled in this period after the death of the gospel writers, who probably died around 100, 110. I'm not a biblical expert, so I can't off the top of my head. But in that formative period between 100 and 300, people organized these gospels, you know, it was a big explosion in scholarship in the 1990s, the the Gnostic Gospels, and why did these four become canonical when these other Gospels that were known and read and considered as canonical dropped out? And that refers to the Augustine, uh, Jerome, that emphasis in the 400s to weed out the Liberus, the Manichaean, the Donatist, and the Gnostics, and get something that was conducive for an organized church. When you take Acts and Revelations and letters and the four Gospels, there's 26, 27 formal chapters or books in the New Testament. But that is an arbitrary selection, and that reflects certain church goals. But John kind of sticks out. It's something that you feel more directly connected to the Word of God through Jesus Christ without maybe editorial or conscious interventions to place that Word within a more organized early church effort that was going on. All right, Victor, I think we better leave it there and conclude this podcast. We went all the way from Elon Musk to the Gospel of John. So lots of excursions along the way. I hope everybody enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your wisdom. And thank everybody for listening once again and putting up with us. All right. This is Sammy Wink and Victor Davis Hansen. We're signing off.